Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Today's episode of When Diplomacy Fails is brought to you by The Vassal State, When Diplomacy Fails' official blog, where every single Wednesday we release a new article, be it on something to do with history podcasting, something to do with history, or something to do with both. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, if you want some more reading of When Diplomacy Fails' content and not just the listening... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Make sure to check out The Vassal State every single Wednesday, or check it out right now and read up on all the articles you missed. To go and find that, head on over to wdfpodcast.com forward slash thevassalstate or head on over to wdfpodcast.com and follow the links from there. You won't regret it, guys. 
You won't regret it, guys. Have yourself a share or a read or a like or a everything else. Comment on it. Let me know that you're enjoying them. And I would be super, super appreciative. We're getting content there out to people in so many different ways. Well, so far, just two different ways, but we're working on doing more. And in the future, thanks to history friends like yourself and patrons like yourself too, we are able to make When Diplomacy Fails better and we are able to make history thrive. So thanks for that. And thanks, of course, for listening to the latest episode of The Long War. It's a good one. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Welcome history friends, patrons all to the 12th installment of When Diplomacy Fails His Look at the Long War. Last time we finalised our diplomatic details in the Habsburg-Ottoman camp and saw how the two parties slid towards war at different times. While the Habsburgs declared through Herman of Baden that they considered themselves in a state of war with the Turks from the 12th of May 1683 onwards, in Sultan Mehmed IV's mind the date could very well be set back half a year, and in the Grand Vizier's mind, it could possibly be set back a full year, or even 20 years. What we also learned last time was that we simply do not know what was going on in either Mustafa or Mehmed's head at this point in time. We believe that they acted against the Habsburgs for several reasons, gradually departing from Belgrade in early May 1683. Yet, we cannot point to one particular insult or actor that was responsible. Certainly Mustafa and his master sponsored the campaign which was to come, but they only pushed for it because they believed in its success. They believed in its success because, in their view, the Habsburgs had never appeared so weak, while the House of Osmond had never seemed so strong. In this episode we continue our coverage of the approach towards Vienna. As the Ottomans prepared to enter the sodden Hungarian marshes, hundreds of miles to the northwest, the garrison of Vienna and its commanders were developing strategies to defend their homes from the invader. Such actions were recommended in the new course of war, but they were not necessarily an admission that the city was under danger. Although undoubtedly given pause for thought by late 1682 as to the security of his domains, there is additionally no evidence to suggest that the Holy Roman Emperor or his subjects, nor his new Polish ally King Sobieski, knew what the next Ottoman move would be, or that Vienna was the primary target in the crosshairs. If you're ready then, let's take you to that very city in Vienna, where a strange kind of eerie calm seemed to be descending. The ministers of kings should learn to moderate their ambition. The higher they elevate themselves above their proper sphere, the greater the danger that they will fall. Louis Fourteenth of France. Operations for war had not commenced with Herman of Baden's letter to Kara Mustafa on the 12th of May 1683. Mercifully for the Habsburgs, certain officials and military personnel within their establishment had had the foresight to anticipate the unthinkable. Unlike their masters in Vienna, who remained 
naively convinced of the Ottoman Empire's incoming capitulation or of the Hungarian reconciliation, several high-ranking military officers in the Habsburg administration were doing their best to reinforce the military defences right across the empire. Diplomacy had been one element of this policy, yet as we have seen it wasn't rousingly successful, either among the other German princes and potentates, or among the wider European powers. From August 1682 onwards, a plan to refurbish the defences of Vienna had been gradually implemented, as had large increases in taxation of the nobility and peasantry for the sake of supporting an effective doubling in the size of Leopold's personal household army to over 40,000 men. In February 1683, Quartermaster General Halsingen was instructed to calculate the available manpower and military units available at Leopold's disposal. To put it in perspective, a full company of foot was held to be 200 men, while a full company of cavalry was held to be 80 men. Sweeping across the hereditary lands then, Halsingen counted 70 companies in Bohemia, 45 in Moravia and 48 in Silesia. Several of these companies would be paid for by local nobles and magnates, as well as Leopold's household, where a deficit hampered proceedings, and they amounted to a ring of defence surrounding the inner Austrian heartland, of 7,600 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. Further afield, in Hungary, 108 companies were counted, while in the inner heartlands of Styria, Carinthia and Carniola, 43 companies were found. In Upper and Lower Austria, Halsingen counted 40 companies. From Austria alone then, Halsingen could estimate that he possessed nearly 10,000 infantry and nearly 3,000 horse. When it came to calculating the Hungarian companies, the Quartermaster General was informed by local Habsburg officials that Hungarian militias could not be relied upon, and that it was believed many had deliberately fudged their numbers to acquire greater resources than they needed. Looking to the Empire itself, Halsingen was told to expect about 16,000 infantry. He would have then looked at his final figures and scratched his head. Somehow, the final number for the defence of the Habsburg's lands came to 44,000 infantry and just a little bit over 17,000 cavalry. And This was all well and good, but the reason why Halsingen scratched his head was because he would have known full well that the Habsburgs could never have afforded to maintain so many men under arms at the same time, and that the numbers he had received definitely surpassed the true number of effective soldiers that he actually had at his command. On closer inspection, he did denote that several companies had been counted twice. Less than half of the companies listed were up to full strength, and the Hungarian element remained a morass of contradictions. As technical and statistical as Halsingen's number crunching may have seemed then, when it was considered that an Ottoman host of well over 100,000 was heading to the west, the Habsburg response appeared at best, completely underwhelming and at worst, dangerously inadequate. Halsingen continued to press for more men, and his ordeal continued for the next six months. Halsingen's experience of the total shortcomings of the Habsburg administration to provide a proper defensive barrier to Ottoman advancement was symptomatic of a regime in the aftermath of a great war. What did states generally do after a great war, you might be wondering? Well, I'll tell you, history friend. They disarmed, and in the aftermath of the Treaty of Nijmegen, Leopold saw 10 of his 21 regiments of foot, 10 out of his 21 cavalry regiments, and 2 out of his 4 dragoon regiments and most of his mounted Croat troops all be dismissed. 
To reverse this trend in April 1681, an expansion for Leopold's army was ordered, as the Holy Roman Emperor claimed he wished to raise 20,000 more troops. The reasoning was not, incidentally, to combat the newly freed up Turks. Instead, Leopold and his Spanish faction were utterly focused on combating Louis XIV's France. Less than six months after Leopold had requested the new increases, accompanied by desperately unpopular taxation amounting to 2 million extra florins a year, Louis seized Strasbourg. In the past, efforts to economise saw companies not quite disband, but filter remnants of older companies into similar ones to make up numbers lost over the years. Thus, Leopold had to specify when he declared he wanted 20,000 new men in his army. Simply declaring a wish to see 20 new companies would probably have enabled the Habsburg administration to fudge the numbers by filtering the old replacements back out of their adopted companies and then leave them as their standalone companies of infantry despite their obvious deficiencies. What this meant for the Habsburgs was that when an official claimed he had done a good day's work and managed to create a new company for his master's defence, what he often did was simply take Carl and his dragoons from where they had been making up the numbers in Jan's company and give them back their old colours. Jan's company was still as depleted as it had been before Carl and his dragoons came along, and Carl's dragoons themselves were hardly large enough to be considered a full unit, as they were not even half the 200 men strength normally considered a company, but to the Habsburg official making up the numbers and ticking the boxes of companies under his superior's orders, on paper at least, Leopold had just gained a new company in Carl's Dragoons. This example of Carl and Jan is pretty much indicative of how the Habsburg rearmament progressed. To prevent wastage and cutting corners, constant vigilance had to be applied to ensure that the force on paper was actually received in kind lest a disastrous situation could greet the commander who called his expected companies together at a desperate moment. Responsible for gathering the unpopular taxes and getting Leopold's circle focused on what he believed was the true threat in the East rather than in Louis' France was the President of the Treasury, Christopher Abel. Abel argued from autumn 1682 that the Ottomans were planning a new campaign and that the Hasbrays were urgently required to prepare for this threat. It was perhaps because he so believed in the urgency of this cause that he enthusiastically organised Leopold's finances and managed to push through the tax increases which would enable Leopold to field the army necessary to beat the Turk back. Without Abel's efforts, Leopold would never have possessed the manpower which later proved so vital to Habsburg integrity. He is thus a forgotten hero of the last siege of Vienna, as was, of course, George Rimpler, the pioneering military engineer from Saxony who had served along the Rhine in his efforts to beef up the defences against the French, and who would now be tasked with shoring these defences up along the Danube and with the Hungarian frontier. It was quite a task but Rimpler at least enjoyed the support of Hermann of Baden, who, in perhaps the wisest decision of his career, pushed for Rimpler's appointment at just the right moment. Knowing what we know of Hermann of Baden, though, it was probably because of his service against France that Hermann believed Rimpler came to be recommended, considering his demonstrated obsession with the French by this point. Whatever the real reason, though, Hermann of Baden approved of Rimpler, and Christopher Abel was on hand to provide the funds. While this triangle of support worked to resuscitate the dire Habsburg situation in the East, 
another appointment was made in Vienna. In February 1680, Rudiger Starenberg, the son of a high-ranking military governor in Lower Austria, was appointed commandant in Vienna and colonel of the city guard. The appointment proved critical. Starenberg was an energetic and passionate soldier who injected a new productivity into proceedings at the Hasburg capital. He quickly sent out requests to Abel and Rimpler to come and pay for new military improvements on the city's defences, while he also argued for sharp increases in Vienna's garrison. Fast forward to the 11th of January 1683, and a committee was set up to discuss military defence in Hungary. By that point, negotiations with the Commonwealth had reached a fever pitch, and affairs in the Holy Roman Empire remained troublingly uncertain. The committee focused on the different linchpins of the Habsburg defence in Hungary. Fortress towns we've probably heard of before, such as Gyor, Pressburg and Komarum, all of which served as the de facto capitals of defence in the different portions of Hungary that they occupied. If we can remember back to that mind map square of marshy land to the east of Vienna, then the process of explaining which rivers hosted what fortresses becomes far easier. I'll do my best to put this image in the description of the episode, but for whatever reason, sometimes it doesn't seem to work, so if you're looking for it, it will also be on the Facebook page. To put it simply, Gyor was roughly in the top left corner of the square, and it formed a critical barrier to any hostile force looking to cross the River Rab, which, as we of course know, was a river flowing south of the Danube which flowed into the Danube and created a convenient fork in the river, where the fortress of Komarum lay, literally smack bang in the top left corner of the square. This was the quintessential anchor of Habsburg defence before it guarded the fork of the rivers Danube and Rab, and also provided advance notice of any force coming from the east along the Danube's banks. If you were to turn back around out of Komarum and follow the Danube west towards Vienna, effectively going out of our square mind map, then you would soon reach Pressburg, which, if you didn't know, is actually the modern-day capital of the Slovak Republic, Bratislava. If you're still confused as to where everything is, just remember our square of marshes bordered by the important rivers of the region, which the Ottomans will have to make it through before they can reach Vienna. South of the river Danube, flowing along the top of the square, is a load of marshes and swamps. North of the Danube, there's plenty of marshland, but a great deal more rivers and tributaries, many of which flow into the Carpathian Mountains. I don't want to bother you guys with too many more names, so I'll do my best to leave out new place names unless they're really important. And this helps me as well, so it's not totally selfless. As long as you can grasp roughly where the different forces are, it doesn't matter all that much what the name of yet another poorly defended Habsburg River Fort is. So let's continue. Habsburg officials, including those at that committee meeting in January 1683, placed much of their hopes in the natural defences provided by the rivers. Unsurprising considering the number of rivers, the extent to which they dominated and moulded the Hungarian plains, and the relative poverty of the Habsburg administration to deal effectively with the man-made structures necessary for military defence. The wishful thinking returned then, as many present at the meeting, including Starenberg, who was then on loan from Vienna, believed that the fortifications already in place would be enough to stall or even halt the Ottomans if they marched. As we have seen, Hermann of Baden was so confident in Imre Tokoli's reconciliation 
that he made very few contingency plans for Hungary if the region remained hostile, which of course it did. To be fair to the Habsburgs, past experience had shown that the Ottomans were foiled or outmaneuvered thanks to the geography of the region and the natural barriers it provided, but this time would be different. If Abel's taxes enabled Leopold to build an army that saved his lands, so too did Starenberg's determination bring Vienna's defences up to scratch and save it during the long and arduous siege to come. From the beginning of October 1682, various orders for supplies and infrastructural work on the city's defences were undertaken on a wide scale. The moats were cleared, palisades were added to portions of the walls, and workers were set to the task of improving the city's overall defences. Certain walls were demolished to make the defence more effective and remove places where the enemy could find cover, while additional earthen reinforcement of the walls enabled the counterscarp, the fancy word for a place for a soldier to shelter and fire from out in his defences, to take shape. By appealing to the grumbling estates of Austria, contingents and labourers, as much as four and a half thousand men strong, soon arrived to work all day long in rotating shifts to shore up the defences of the city. The freezing winter of 1682-83 complicated matters because it froze the Danube and prevented supplies reaching other fortresses along the river, as well as in the city itself. Yet the work kept going right up until the last moment. Starenberg was still ordering shipments of timber to reinforce his palisades and beef up the counterscarp defences as late as late June 1683. It is worth asking the question, if the Habsburgs weren't sure that the Ottomans were on their way to Vienna, why Starenberg wasted so much time and energy beefing up the defences of Vienna? In a way, this question can be answered more by looking at the man of Starenberg himself, a military man to the core. He would have known just by looking at Vienna that it was seriously insufficient and that it had been in desperate need of reinforcement for some time. So regardless of whether or not the Ottomans were on their way to Vienna, it only made logical sense to repair the defences of the Habsburg capital while the time was at hand. Orders for the demolition of certain walls and districts to disadvantage the enemy around Vienna had been ordered on the 22nd of April 1683. Yet by June, predictably enough, many of the unhappy citizens had prevented such work from being done. While the labourers continued to dig and set palisades, heavier cannon were mounted on different portions of the walls. Although the Vienna arsenal had been tasked with supplying the Hungarian army as well, so much of its reserves in cannon and shot were emptied at such an inopportune time. As the work continued and the tensions build up, by the beginning of May 1683, even as Hermann of Baden made the unofficial war official between the Habsburgs and Ottomans, Starenberg remained in desperate need of supplies. Sections of critical weakness remained. The wall beside Leopold's palace at the Hofburg was a large straight section of wall in the old medieval style, great for keeping out armies that lived in the 1300s, but prone to collapse when struck with cannon in the late 1600s. To reinforce this wall as well as other portions of the defences, strange activities were going on around the city. To a modern observer, it might appear odd that the best defence against gunpowder was the erection of wooden stakes and the building up of earth against the city's walls. Within this build-up of earth, levels could be set with wood and trenches could be dug to create ideal defensive positions. Connecting these positions together, 
Fields of interlocking fire complemented by heavy cannons could be created and organised by the military engineers, such as Rimpler. The walls of Vienna themselves were mostly untouched. There was obviously no time to start building new brick walls for the city at this stage. What was done instead was the act of making getting to those walls far more difficult. Before the Turk could reach the walls of Vienna proper, he would first be faced with a steep wall of wooden stakes, the Palisades. These would peak over the top, and the garrison would stand on the other side of them, on the counterscarp, on elevated walkways, and fire down at the enemy. As the first line of defence, it was expected that the garrison would then retreat across the available makeshift bridges, which spanned the moat, before taking cover behind a second, near carbon copy of the first setup. So as the Turks made their way over the first earthen wall, they scrambled up the steep palisades and then they dropped into the moat on the other side, which was often merely a ditch because it was never properly filled in time, they were often shot at incessantly by the defenders behind the second line. When the second line was compromised, the process was repeated again. The defenders retreated over a second moat on another set of planks or makeshift bridges, which was again destroyed, and defensive positions behind what was now the city wall took shape. At this third line of defence, sandbags, additional palisades and further desperate tactics would be employed, while the Turks again had to scramble up the abandoned second line and push through the second moat, under incessant fire from cannon and soldier alike. This system, if done effectively, was the most sophisticated method of defending a fortified position in late 17th century Europe. The tactics confounded the use of artillery, as the cannons simply couldn't make an indent on the steep palisades and earthworks. Even if the palisades were blown apart and shattered the earthworks, this then left additional obstacles for the Turks to overcome. Yet, the Ottomans themselves had long been outpaced technologically by western forms of artillery. The guns they brought with them to Vienna were a far cry from the once terrifying pieces that Mehmed the Conqueror had used to batter down the three walls of Constantinople. Ottoman guns in 1683 were smaller, less effective and their handlers less sure of themselves when it came to battering through defences. Thanks mostly to revolutions in how the Turks conducted their sieges though, these shortcomings didn't necessarily matter. This is because the standard Ottoman tactics were not to batter down the walls from a distance. Instead, the common strategy involved the digging of concentric trenches which the men could then take shelter in, while the true work went on under cover of shelter from these trenches and darkness. It was not with artillery, but with mining that the Ottomans excelled. By digging under the defences and placing large collections of combustible materials together, the defences could be undermined once the very ground below them fell away under deafening explosions. The Ottomans' tactics are striking because they appear to have been taken straight out of the handbook of a soldier on the Western Front in the First World War. Where else would you have had such a wasteland of trenches? And where else would you have seen such terrifying underground mining take place in the name of destroying the enemy's defences from below? You may have answered the Somme, Messine Ridge, or somewhere else in the wasteland of the Western Front, but in actual fact these tactics were used on a smaller, more methodical scale at the last siege of Vienna. The similarity between both eras of the tactic, aside from the fact that very little changed between the arduous digging, the dangerous act of setting the charge and the terrifying spectacle of fighting the enemy within those same mines, were the devastating results that such tactics produced. 
the only way to combat such tactics as soldiers on the Western Front came to accept was to dig your own trenches and place your own mines, leading to the kind of claustrophobic confrontations beneath thousands of tons of earth that, yeah, let's be honest, just don't really bear thinking about. Despite the devastating Ottoman strategy, the work of Rimpler, Starenberg and the thousands of labourers were to create a defensive system around Vienna which was formidable, if inconsistent. Much work had been done to reinforce the wall next to the Hofburg along the Berg Bastion. This was where the best defences were placed. That three-tiered line of defences we looked at earlier was used on a lesser scale in other sections of the wall, but it was used to its full effect here. Again, there will be a diagram on the Facebook page, slash hopefully in the description, for you guys to look at. But this was just as well that such defences were being used, because this section of the wall would serve as the primary point of attack once the Turks arrived. Oh yes, Karim Mustafa knew all about this wall along the Berg Bastion, and he had it pinpointed as his primary method of getting into the city. As soon as Karim Mustafa arrived then, all the previous years of work would be put to the ultimate test. What continued to occupy Starenberg was the activity of commissioning as many supplies as was humanly possible should Vienna be cut off. This was easier said than done, as centres like Amsterdam and Hamburg upped their prices opportunistically to take advantage of the lack of Habsburg preparation. Starenberg was in constant contact with the treasurer, Christopher Abel, as both men sought to persuade the other of the need to save, spend or acquire a certain commodity. Fortunately for Vienna, both formed a fair working relationship, and Abel mostly managed to organise payment for what Starenberg required. By June 1683, it was noted that over 500,000 florins had been spent on munitions alone, while costly contracts with independent suppliers had given Leopold's treasurer the runaround. The Habsburg administration tended to hire individuals to acquire the goods for them, yet these contractors often ran into difficulty themselves, because cash was always demanded up front, and Vienna's distance from the major production centres made everything more expensive. Starenberg managed, just about, to commission the necessary goods, but their entry into Vienna must have been a sight to behold for the garrison and citizenry alike, who by April 1683 would have suspected that their own homes were soon to be the centre of a war zone, judging by the sheer influx of materials and the incessant improvement works. On the 22nd of April 1683, a resident in Vienna noted that Last Monday, the Dipiento Bastion, 500 strong, was inspected by the Imperial Commissaries. 900 horses and 169 wagons for the artillery, and 19 large anchors for warships also arrived. While on the same day, the foot marched along the road to the suburbs and went down the Danube the next morning. On Tuesday, three craft from Steyr came in with 2,000 cannonball, and many thousands of smaller shot. Half the Scherfenberg regiment, with 1,200 men, also arrived and marched through the city. When the emperor was out of town to hunt, he took the opportunity to inspect them. They were clad in grey with blue facings. A problem which still plagued the war council, and Hermann of Baden in particular, was the issue of the Rhine. Was it safe, especially after Louis XIV's ultimatum expired in November 1683, to begin moving soldiers away from the Western Front? 
Even with the stern warning given by Albert Caprara in September 1682, as we have seen it would take Herman of Baden until the following May before he would issue what amounted to a declaration of war on the Ottomans. By that point, of course, much of the Ottoman cogs of war were whirring into life already, and even the Habsburgs had been acting, as we have seen in this episode, as though peace was not guaranteed, especially in the case of Starenburg. The act of shoring up Vienna's defences and expanding the country's military capabilities looked impressive on paper, but in the grand scheme of things, it is worth considering that Hermann of Baden approved the former to justify using the latter against the French. In the period between September and May, Hermann would certainly have had good reason to flip-flop in his commitments. Louis XIV remained as mysterious as ever, in a deliberate policy of bluff designed to slow the Habsburg reaction to Ottoman moves. As we have seen, this French policy worked. What had been overlooked when the new army for Leopold was being raised was the fact that several of these new companies that had been counted were actually in the west along the Rhine and would thus have to march back across the Holy Roman Empire to get to Vienna and link up with Charles of Lorraine, the new commander-in-chief of Habsburg forces. The plan had originally been to launch a counter-attack into Ottoman lands and perhaps seize a significant fortress before the Ottomans, with their very gradual speed, reached Habsburg territory. Yet this opportunity was denied, and Hermann of Baden had to wait uselessly as three weeks passed before, in the first week of May 1683, a significant amount of soldiers were actually in place to embark with Charles of Lorraine on campaign. Up to the last minute, as we saw, Hermann of Baden awaited news of Tocli's reconciliation and the pacification of Hungary, and only when this proved totally illusory did Hermann seem to accept that the major thrust came from the east rather than the west. Yet, this realisation came far too late for a man in charge of Habsburg defences. Mercifully for both Charles of Lorraine and the Habsburgs themselves, the act of funnelling soldiers eastward to where Charles of Lorraine's camp was based had continued without the President of the War Council's tacit approval. Another unfortunate fact about the Habsburg defence in summer 1683 then, the President of the Habsburg War Council, Hermann of Baden, and the new Commander-in-Chief of Habsburg forces, Charles of Lorraine, really did not like each other. Since by the 6th of May 1683 it was inconceivable that these soldiers would be turned around, in spite of Hermann of Baden's misplaced Hungarian optimism, Leopold had already been advised that for the sake of morale, it was necessary to reinforce the region around Vienna with the strongest contingents of the Habsburg army. It should be added that at least 15,000 men were by this stage permanently languishing along the Rhine to forestall any French attack, a gift from the King of France to the Ottoman Sultan, which Louis XIV knew Leopold would willingly give. Content to wait and see while the Rhine princes and the rest of Europe seemed unwilling to act either way, Louis anticipated the arrival of a large Ottoman host along the Danube and the exhaustion of the Habsburgs as they attempted to repulse it. While waiting to the east, a few miles downriver from Vienna, Charles of Lorraine welcomed with some relief the Royal Hungarian troops into the field, yet his relief soon dissipated when he realised, to his consternation, that only 2,000 rather than the promised 6,000 men had arrived in support of their Holy Roman Emperor. Yet, beggars could not be choosers. On the 6th of May 1683, at Pressburg, alongside a force of men, 32,000 strong, the Holy Roman Emperor inspected the troops and engaged 
and a vast parade designed to shore up morale in the region. In a nine-hour procession complete with three sayings of mass and a state banquet, Charles of Lorraine was warmly thanked by Leopold for taking what arguably would have been the emperor's traditional place at the head of an army in defence of Christendom. It was to Leopold's good fortune that he did not decide to lead the army which was planning to throw itself at one of the many Ottoman fortresses further down the Danube River. On a conference held between the major military leaders on the 7th of May, where Herman of Baden and Charles of Lorraine awkwardly exchanged unpleasantries, Lorraine's old idea of attacking before the Ottomans came into view was repeated. Finally, it was decided to move towards the fortress of Comorum, further down the Danube, where the situation would be assessed and the plan of attack revised according to the circumstances. Lorraine seemed confident to make a play for Estragon, which Leopold approved of, for its symbolic value as the base of the Ottoman Empire's Danubian presence, second only to Buda. Pushing ever eastward from the 19th of May, Lorraine reached Gyor and kept moving, refusing to heed the protests of his subordinates in a meeting held on the 26th of May. These subordinates claimed that Lorraine was moving too far from the Ottoman danger, and thus leaving their force open to being cut off and surrounded, but Lorraine continued to press for the advance. On the way to Estergom on the 31st of May, Lorraine received some devastating news which seemed to confirm his subordinates' fears. Far to the southeast, in the bottom right corner of our Hungarian mind map square, the Ottomans had already taken the initiative and crossed the bridges at Ostjak. This news hit Lorraine like a bomb. Since he was now, at a point, now roughly halfway between the Ottoman host and Vienna, it was imperative that Lorraine did not get caught out and lose the Habsburgs' only field army in the region. Would he press forward and seize an Ottoman base, or would he withdraw and aim to defend the river crossings with his force? These questions, as well as so many others, swirled through Charles of Lorraine's head in late May 1683. Several miles to the southeast, Kara Mustafa marched at the head of his grand military host. There was no doubt or second-guessing present in his war strategy. Already he imagined the arrival outside the walls of the Golden Apple. Next time, we'll examine the scene, as the Habsburg errors pile up, leading the Habsburg court to confront the terrifying fact that the enemy, within days, were destined to be at the gates. The end game had begun. Thanks very much for listening, history friends and patrons. And if you're wondering, yes, I do have a cold and that's why my voice sounds a bit odd. I was going to pull a sickie, but I decided that that would be a bit lame, considering we only had an episode off a few weeks ago. So, yes, because I love you guys, I pushed through it. And hey, what do you know, I'm still in one piece. And now I get to have sympathy for the rest of the evening. So lucky me. Anyway, in any case, thank you very much for listening. You guys have been great. This has been episode 12 of The Long War. My name is Zach. Thanks, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.